Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Janine Moloff. I am the producer and host. Uh, This is also the home of our companion show, the Environmental Justice Report. Now, this week, I don't think we have any environmental stories this week, so we're just going to move right into it. Okay, election season started, and with all the insanity, of course, we have Donald Trump just basically screwing ever over everybody, all right? I, I truly, I truly don't understand MAGA morons, because it's obvious, well, I'll take that back. It's obvious that they have become a cult, you know, where Trump has basically put himself as like almost like a Christ-like figure where, you know, he makes statements like, I am your retribution and I, I am your salvation and all this other crap. And when they, you know, and Trump claims that when the law goes after him, he's going after all his followers too, which is pure nonsense. And it's truly frightening the type of what can only be called lynch mob that Donald Trump has assembled. So, I don't know if you got to see our advert because, again, Facebook is playing games and so is Twitter and, you know, it just is what it is. But if you didn't see it, let me let you know what it's about. So this week it's about Vivek Ramaswamy. He is uh, a new up-and-comer and he's one of our stories and also about Trump and a few other stories as well. So the title is Vivek's Lies and the Need to Disqualify Trump for Office. So right now, Vivek Ramaswamy is the current, you know, GOP flavor of the month, you know, complete with both prep school and Ivy League credentials. Here he tries to position himself as the anti-elitist. It's, it's, if it weren't so sad, it would be funny. Now, some media outlets have called him Trump light, while others claim he has the, you know, combination of the Obama charm while pushing the fascist MAGA agenda. So who is Vivek? How did he make his fortune? Is he really a wonderkind of some type or the academia version of the ultimate smarmy used car salesman? We're going to discuss the deep dive research I found on dear little Vivek, the millennial con artist. It's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. Uh, There's some other information I found out about Vivek as well and some of the things he did with his biotech company. We won't have time to get into all of it today, so this is really part one. So part one is going to deal more with, you know, his background and, you know, how he made his fortune. That's our first story. Now, our second story was actually recorded before a few weeks ago, but then it just mysteriously disappeared from blog talk radio. I was amazed. You know, I had followers come and contact me. Where's the show? It's there. I did it. It's still, by the way, on the list of episodes, but it won't play. Now, that in and of itself is really suspicious. I'm not going to cast dispersions on Blog Talk Radio, uh, except that we're going to be looking for a new home because this feels like I was censored by Blog Talk. Um, Blog Talk, one of their most important shows, happens to be a religious show you know, Christian evangelical. So maybe we're in the wrong place. Uh, So what did the story that mysteriously disappeared, what what did it deal with? Well, it dealt with the requirements of the 14th Amendment, specifically Section 3. That's the part that, that demands that any politician, even a president, 
be permanently disqualified from ever holding office if they participate in or incite an insurrection against the nation. Now, Trump clearly incited the January 6th insurrection, and now evidence has surfaced that he was involved in the planning, intimately involved, in fact. So that's our second story, and I'm going to just start to talk about a legal doctrine called willful ignorance. We're only going to touch upon it today because we're going to talk about it in future episodes. Um, willful ignorance is that little legal trick where, you know, somebody in the corporate world like Trump or others will, you know, they'll tell their attorneys, don't tell me what you're doing, you know, if it crosses the line. I don't want to know. It's, it's kind of like the same tactic that mafia bosses use, but the law doesn't allow for willful ignorance. You're still accountable. You're still responsible. So we'll talk about that a bit. We're also going to have another installment of My Little Margie, as well as our illustrious Jackass of the Week Award, and then we'll end with a brief editorial. Now, there's going to be a few interruptions, and I apologize in advance. Um, I'm having all sorts of tech problems these days. All of a sudden, um, I'm shut out of Word, my Office 365, and yeah, and I say update your browser. I'm working on a Chromebook. It won't let me update my browser. So uh, I've had to kind of put things on paper, and then this little machine will only allow me so many pages at a time before I have to change things. So, you know, if I say we're going to a break, I'll play the intro. If there's some silent time, just kind of wait it out there with me, and I do apologize in advance. All right. So, as they say, let's go on with the show. We're going to play our little intro music for, before our first story. Dear little Ah, oh, okay. So there's a couple of claims here. Now, normally I would rather chop off both my arms and legs than cite anything from Fox News. But occasionally... They actually print some news. Uh, there is a little difference between Fox News locally and the big reports that are all about personalities. Um, there's a difference between their written news and their broadcast news. So, and this one, they're attacking Ramaswamy. All right. I guess maybe they're afraid he's going to take the attention away from, you know, Trump or DeSantis or whoever they favor this time. But this is a story, a few stories actually from Fox News. I couldn't believe they actually did a little research. Uh, <clears throat> this one was published August 25th. The headline reads, Ramaswamy's claims he came from no money clash with prep school upbringing. Ramaswamy, whose parents were a lawyer and a psychiatrist, already had a stock portfolio when he graduated elite private high school. And this is by Jessica Chasmar of Fox News. Now, his father's also an engineer who worked for General Electric for many years. His family was hardly poor migrants that had no nothing but the clothes on their back. Not true. Pure BS. So, <laughs> dear little Vivek likes to push this rags-to-riches crap on the campaign trail. And during the debate last week... You know, he claimed that, you know, his, his it's true, his parents did immigrate to the U.S., but he claimed with nothing. Unfortunately, uh, Fox did a little research, actually, and found that public records 
as well as Ramaswamy's own past writings, don't quite reflect that claim. Okay? So here's a direct quote from Ramaswamy. He said, quote, I'm not a politician. I'm an entrepreneur. My parents came to this country with no money 40 years ago. I have gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies, end quote. Now, later in the debate, when Ramaswamy was discussing how he does support school choice, said that he, quote, didn't grow up in money, end quote. Okay. Now, Ramaswamy keeps painting this because he wants to look like he's, you know, virtuous, I guess. You know, that whole Horatio Alger, ragged dick nonsense. Um, but here's the deal. According to the actual facts, Ramaswamy was born in 1985 in Cincinnati. His parents are, and I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing their names, Ganapathy Ramaswamy and Geetha Ramaswamy. His parents were upper, I'm reading straight from the article now, were, quote, upper caste Tamil Brahmin in India. Both parents were highly educated professionals in India before they moved to the U.S. and started a family. The article goes on to say, quote, Ramaswamy's father held a graduate degree in engineering from the National Institute of Technology, Calicut, when he immigrated to the U.S. in the 1970s, end quote. Now, in Ramaswamy's own book published in 2022 titled Nation of Victims, Ramaswamy wrote that, quote, when he was in sixth grade or about 11 years old, his father had been working as an engineer at General Electric for the past 20 years or since about 1976. Now, the article, I'm just reading straight from Fox's article, really. The article goes on to say, quote, two years after their marriage, Ramaswamy's father earned his Ph.D. from the University of Cincinnati while still working at General Electric in 1985, according to details in his father's dissertation. It goes on to say, quote, that same year, Ramaswamy's mother immigrated to America and Vivek was born that August, followed by his younger brother, Shankar, end quote. The article goes on to say, quote, Ramaswamy's mother already held a medical degree in geriatric psychiatry from Mysore Medical College and Research Institute in India by the time she arrived in the U.S. in 1985. She obtained her license to practice in Oklahoma less than six months after coming to the U.S., according to state records. Though it's unclear why, though it is unclear why in Oklahoma, that license expired in 2014. End quote. The article goes on to say, quote, Ramaswamy's mother obtained her Ohio medical license less than two years after her arrival in the U.S. in February 1987, which is still active according to public records, and she worked as a geriatric psychiatrist and medical director at a private practice in Cincinnati from the time Vivek was four years old until he was in college, according to her own LinkedIn profile, end quote. Okay, so in Vivek's own book, Nation of Victims, he wrote that while in sixth grade, um, his family was, quote, comfortably middle-class family with two incomes, end quote. All right. Now, the article goes on to explain that by the year 2000, uh, when Ramaswamy was in high school, his father was already working as a patent attorney at General Electric. So daddy went on to get another degree. Ramaswamy did not go to school in the deep hood. He went to school, he went to high school, an elite private high school in Cincinnati. Uh, these days, the tuition costs about 16000 a year. 
his parents also had a very nice stock portfolio for Vivek. And that was already bringing in hundreds of dollars in dividends before he graduated high school and thousands by the time he attended Harvard. And that is according to Vivek's own 2002 to 2004 tax returns, which Vivek himself released back in June. Now, Vivek's campaign didn't respond to Fox News Digital's request for comment. Gee whiz, wonder why. (laughs) Good Lord. Um, You know, this is as bad as Vivek's attempted, you know, at rapping. I don't know why this dude thinks he's cool. It's it's sad. All right, it's just sad. Um, But he's he's slick. So Fox News Digital also reported in an earlier article that dear little Vivek was already a millionaire at the time he accepted, quote, a Soros family scholarship he previously said, previously said he needed in order to pay for law school, end quote. What the F is going on? Excuse my language. It takes some real selfishness and lack of integrity to accept a scholarship to pay for law school when you can more when you're already a millionaire, you can afford to pay for it. That money could have gone to an actually needy student and deprived somebody else who was actually worthy. Now, Ramaswamy did try to defend himself a month ago because he accepted a ninety thousand dollar award and it's from the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship for New Americans. Um, you know, again, if you're already a millionaire, you can afford ninety thousand dollars. Get real. Now. Ramaswamy claimed that after graduating from Harvard Law School, no, after graduating from Harvard, he didn't have the money to afford Yale Law School, end quote. Really? You're already a millionaire. You didn't have the money. You could have taken a loan, like, against the money you already had. I mean, it takes some real nerve and lack of integrity to cry poor when you're a millionaire. That's just, that's really crappy. But here's what Vivek, dear little Vivek had to say about the situation. Quote, there was a separate scholarship that I won at the age of 24 to 25. It says 24 dash 25. When I was going to law school in my mid twenties, in my early twenties, when I didn't have the money and it was a merit scholarship that hundreds of kids win that was partially funded, not by George Soros, but by Paul Soros, a relative, his brother. And to be perfectly honest with you, I would have had to be a fool to turn down that scholarship at the age of 24, end quote. Wow. Maybe. uh, I think that somebody who takes that type of money when they can afford to pay for it isn't a, it's not a fool. It's a pig. Okay. So. There's more information. Again, this is all from Fox, so you can't claim this is from this uh, flaming liberal biased uh, paper. It goes on, the Fox report goes on to say that, okay, Ramaswamy accepted the award from the Soros people for Yale Law School in 2011. Now, he was a first-year law student at Yale, but at that time he had already been working several years, get this, Quote, as an investment analyst at the hedge fund QVT Financial, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, in 2011, the same year he accepted the award, Ramaswamy reported 
$2,252,209 in total income, according to his tax returns. He reported a total of $1,173,690 in income in the three years prior, end quote. Where was, it looks to me like he had a lot of money than most of us. This doesn't look like he, quote, had no money. Vivek got caught in a lie. Okay. Um, so, that's dear little Vivek's claim that, you know, he came from poor, big fat lie. Now, there's another article from, again, Fox, ironically. They, uh, it was written a few days before the last one. Again, by Jessica Chasmar, it said Ramaswamy was already a millionaire when he accepted Soros' award. He said he needed to pay for law school. Ramaswamy reported $2.2 million income during the same year he accepted Soros' scholarship. Okay, so it's the same deal here. Once again, this is really something that, it, it shows something about Vivek, all right? You know, we're talking prep school, then the Ivy Leagues, Harvard and Yale. And while he is very bright, and yes, he can be very charming, you know, snake oil salesman, all right? And once again, it makes me wonder, what is it about the Ivy Leagues that they graduate so many freaking sociopaths? I want to know, all right? Is it the snob appeal? What is it? So that's part one. I take a little break here. We're kind of experimenting with this, this, uh, you know, the sound effects here. <coughs> Excuse me. And next, the next uh, little uh, part of our report will, after this little cheering interlude, will be how Vivek made his fortune. <laughs> Okay, and we're back. So this is a piece by Politico. Again, another news outlet that tends to be more conservative. And this one here was written, looks like, in May. Let me double check. Yep. May 14, 2023, by Jessica Piper. The headline is, How Vivek Ramaswamy Made a Fortune Before Pivoting to Politics. Subheadline, the biotech entrepreneur hopes to avoid the most common fate of self-funded candidates. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so, it's no secret that Vivek is self-funding his own campaign. It's no secret that Vivek, while very well educated, is also very arrogant. He's 38 years old. He has never held public office. And... He decides he's going to run for president. He is going to run for the top office with no experience in government at all. Now, mind you, I had the same criticism of Trump. And actually, I don't mean to step on sacred cows, but I had a somewhat similar criticism of Barack Obama claiming that, but it was a little different. I claimed that I thought he was not experienced enough to run for president. I felt like he should have actually done at least his full term in the U.S. Senate first. 
It's my opinion. I stand by it. Okay. You know, one thing I do agree is that the Oval Office is not amateur hour. And while anyone of a certain age has the right to run, they probably shouldn't. Okay. And people this arrogant, it tends to be all about them. They don't care about the nation. They don't care about the people. I have a real problem with that. So, you know, Vivek had a flush of cash from um, his, uh, let's see now, there was a, a hedge fund called Axelvan. I'm going to read straight from this, okay? Um, quote, a week before then-candidate Donald Trump descended an escalator at Trump Tower to launch his first Republican presidential campaign, a pharmaceutical company made what at the time was the largest initial public offering ever by a biotech company. The flush of cash highlighted Axovant's then 29-year-old CEO, Vivek Ramaswamy, whose jump from hedge fund analyst to biotech executive attracted headlines and put his net worth in the hundreds of millions. Since that 2015 offering, Ramaswamy spun out other pharmaceutical companies, founded an anti-woke financial firm, wrote two books, and became a semi-regular cable news commentator, end quote. Okay, first question I have is, how in the bejesus did a 29-year-old go from being a hedge fund analyst to an executive at a biotech firm? I'd like to know. Okay, that's that's insane. With such little experience. Now, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> so, let's look at how he's self-funded. Now, <clears throat> I'm sorry, folks. I'm having this tickle. Now, back in May, Ramaswamy's campaign told Politico that he is, you know, willing to put up over $100 million into his campaign. Now, uh, this is back in May. Uh, this says, quote, FEC filings revealed that so far he spent $10.5 million of his own money on his presidential ambitions in the first quarter, a total that has allowed him to hire staff, primarily to staff his elaborate digital operation, and spend more than $1 million on digital and TV ads in key primary states, according to Ad Impact, which tracks political advertising, end quote. So Politico wanted to look at, you know, how, you know, how did he get to this point, okay? Now, as of May, Ramaswamy had not yet filed what's called a mandatory personal financial disclosure. His, de his campaign did ask for a deadline extension, they claimed they wanted to be, quote, thorough. Okay, deadlines are there. I hate to tell these millennials, but deadlines are there for a reason. And if you're not ready, you're not ready. Okay, I'm tired of hearing these excuses. Um, so, Ramaswamy did release 20 years of his individual income tax returns online and to reporters. Get this, quote, the filings date back to 2002, the year in which he turned 17 and reported earning $2,000. Now, he's 38, 20 years, so from the time he's a teenager. How many people have, you know, filed income tax by then? So, according to this, once again, Ramaswamy reported over a million in annual income for the first time in 2011. That's when he worked at QVT Financial. And quote, has since reported earning more than $250 million, driven by $174 million in capital gains for 2020, end quote. 
I'm just reading straight from this now. Quote, the biggest source of wealth for Ramaswamy is equity in companies he has founded, several of which are publicly traded. Filings provide insight into how the 37-year-old Ohio native made hundreds of millions of dollars through a network of companies focused on prescription drug development before pivoting to politics, end quote. Now, it also says on February 22nd, that's the day after Ramaswamy announced his presidential bid, as documented by Politico once again, he sold 4 million shares of a company called Ryovind. Now, that's a biotech company that he founded, and at $7.95 each, and that's according to public filings with, again, the SEC, the Security and Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, cash value of that single transaction, just a little bit less than $32 million before taxes. Now, uh, as documented by SEC.gov archives, quote, the filing indicated Ramaswamy, who stepped aside from the firm's day-to-day operations in 2021, still owns more than 54 million shares, end quote. Now, there's more. He has another company called Axovant, and that that company raked in hundreds of millions of dollars with this uh, public offering in 2015. And Axovant was, according to this, quote, one of several subsidiaries of Ryovent. It goes on to say, quote, Axovant's first drug intended to treat Alzheimer's disease ultimately failed in clinical trials, leading the company to pivot before eventually dissolving but drugs developed by other Ryovin subsidiaries have since garnered FDA approval, end quote. Now, in 2022, it goes, um, let's look at this here. Um, give me a second here. All right. So it goes on to say, quote, in 2022, Ramaswamy founded Strive Asset Management, an investment firm that branded itself in opposition to the environmental, social, and governance framework used by some firms to make investment decisions amid a broader pushback against so-called ESG from conservatives. The firm, backed by billionaires including Peter Thiel and Bill Ackman, said it was managing more than $230 million in assets after two weeks of trading last August, although Ramaswamy's compensation is not public, and that's as documented by Google.com. End quote. Now, there's more here okay we're going to go to another little piece here give me a second here um i am going to put the music on for a second Okay, and we're back. Make sure that's off. Okay, so here's another thing about Vivek. This, again, is in Politico. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I'm purposely going to sources that are not liberal, so you can't claim I'm being biased. Not that I really care what conservatives think. 
Because I don't. In fact, I think it would be really a, a breath of fresh air if there was any evidence that conservatives actually were capable of true thought. But that's my opinion. Let's move on. So um, this is from Politico. It was written in May, published May 23rd, 2023. The headline, uh, excuse me, it's by Daniel Lipman. The headline is, quote, how Vivek Ramaswamy helped make Martin Shrikeli Shrikeli, I think it is, the pharma bro. The subheadline, Ramaswamy's hedge fund firm invested with the since infamous Shrikeli. Later, he would say he was, quote, pathologically incapable of telling the truth, end quote. Now, you remember Shrikeli, this is the guy who jacked up the price of several drugs, I think, including insulin. Um, He was described as the pharma bro. He went to prison for four years because Shrikeli committed securities fraud as um, documented by just www.justice.gov. Um, he raised, Sir Kelly raised the um, cost of a life-saving anti-parasitic drug and um, among other things, you know, this guy, Heartless. And Sir Kelly also said in a YouTube video that Ramaswamy was at one point, quote, his biggest investor and called him a friend. Okay. Um, Shrikeli went on to tell uh, the My First Million podcast, quote, he basically took our business model and supersized it. Who influenced who is a matter that is left to history, end quote. Uh, Now, the article does acknowledge that Shrikeli may have exaggerated a bit, but the investment was made, the the investment made in Shrikeli's first company, a company called Retrofin, did come from a hedge fund that Ramaswamy worked for at the time, but not from Ramaswamy himself. So in all fairness, because I don't want to get sued. Um, now, Ramaswamy was asked for comment, and he claimed that he helped the firm QVT Financial, quote, evaluate and invest in hundreds of publicly traded companies, end quote. Um, Ramaswamy also noted that Retrofin, which was one of Shirkelly's many companies, uh, work to find drugs for rare diseases, quote, was one of them. In other words, one of the companies that Ramaswamy helped, um, you know, evaluate and invest in. Okay. Uh, Ramaswamy also added, quote, you know, about Shrikeli, quote, his strategy at a different company, Turing, of hiking drug prices is shockingly similar to what Big Pharma regularly does. Big Pharma just dresses it up in the veneer of do-good stakeholder capitalism, and that's why they get away with it. It's arguably um, even more corrupt because it's less transparent. That's just the hard truth, end quote. Wow. I have to repackage that quote from Ramaswamy. He's not actually um, calling out Shrikeli for being a heartless psychopath um, pig you know, who's taking advantage of people who are desperate. Uh, Instead, he's just going, well, Big Pharma does it, and they're meaner than we are. That's an excuse. And for a guy who claims that he's Mr. Accountability, that's total bull. Now, Ramaswamy also had another book that he titled Woke Incorporated. And in that book, Ramaswamy wrote that, quote, Shrikeli was, quote, pathologically incapable of telling the truth, end quote. Um, my question to Ramaswamy is, if you knew that, 
Why were you helping this sociopath? Now, true, you worked for an investment firm, but still, you got to wonder. Okay. Excuse me. Okay. Let's make it. I'm sorry, folks. Now. Uh, I lost my place here. Give me a second, folks. So Ramaswamy has these uh, questionable friends. Okay? Ramaswamy also further wrote in his book, Woke Incorporated, that, you know, upon first meeting Shrikali, he called him, quote, brilliant, and also wrote that he was, quote, a little envious Ramaswamy also wrote in his book, quote, what was Martin Shrikeli really guilty of? Why did the DOJ go after him so hard when it lets others quietly get away with much worse? Whom did Shrikeli hurt? The people who he was convicted for defrauding all ended up richer. The people who used Daraprim didn't pay more for it. The cost was split across the whole health insurance system, end quote. Okay, again, this is more childish excuses. Ramaswamy is literally saying, well, why did DOJ go after my buddy? As Ramaswamy maybe is sweating bullets, too. We don't know how much his involvement was, truth be told. Because, you know, Big Pharma did worse. My buddy did worse. That's nonsense. And then Ramaswamy tries to justify this, what Shrikeli did by saying the people that used this drug didn't pay more for it the cost was split up across the whole health insurance system. Well, when the cost is absorbed by the entire health insurance system, that means other people, a lot of little people who can't afford the cost of their medicines, like whether it's insulin or whatever, they have to pay more for it. So it did hurt a lot of people. And, you know, Ramaswamy, he's worked in finance. He knows how this works. And you have to remember, too, when you're talking about health insurance companies, don't don't buy this crap that they're separate from big banks and investment firms. They're not. Health insurance, the whole insurance industry is big banking. The whole insurance industry is investment firms. He knows how this is done. Now, according to his political article, Ramaswamy didn't totally let Shrikeli off the hook. He did condemn what Shrikeli did in hiking the cost of his old company's drug, calling it, quote, wrong and hurtful, end quote. Um, you know, once again, this is still inexcusable, okay? And it shows, and people can laugh about a lack of integrity on Ramaswamy's part, and we know most politicians don't have integrity. But should we continue to accept this level of moral, um, you know, of moral mediocrity, we should demand more. We just should, and we don't. So, oh, excuse me. Take a little drink here. Okay, I'm back. So that's what we're dealing with here. Now, there's a little more here. We're not going to get into it too much today. But I wanted to mention it, okay? So, give me a second. 
Give me a second here. Let me put the music on. Sorry, folks, because I'm not sure if this works or not. Okay, so we're back. There was this report that came, and I'm not sure if I'm really crazy about this particular source coming from Darntons.com, but I've looked it over, and this has to deal with the drug that, um, the anti-Alzheimer's drug that Vivek's company tried to push. Um, and he, you know, Vivek had this biotech company. Um, the company was based in Bermuda, and the rebranded drug was called RVT-101. It was marketed as an Alzheimer's breakthrough, but it failed. Vivek sold shares before the trial, which you know, raised suspicions of insider knowledge, which isn't the same thing as insider trading. But uh, it's the accusation, whether we're not sure if it's right or not, there's an accusation that Vivek and his company manipulated the data for this drug using what's called a completer analysis. And a completer analysis basically only reports the drug's uh, good effects, okay? Who did it actually help? And it totally, and it, it omits all the negatives, okay, to make a drug look more effective than it actually is. And according to this, the accusation was that his mother, who is a medical doctor, but she is a geriatric psychiatrist, not a biotech engineer, um, basically reinterpreted the reports to make them look more favorable. Again, these are accusations. Uh, we don't actually have data to prove that it is true or not. I will admit that this was a piece written by Alexander Dawkins, who is a right-wing political commentator and, and, and writer. Um, so once again, the accusations are there. I would like to see more information about it. Uh, again, the more we look at Vivek, the more the straw man starts to fall apart. And he's certainly not the only politician that has made false claims or questionable claims. But, you know, once again, we deserve better. Okay? We just do. Okay, so that's dear little Vivek. Poor baby, poor Bubala. You know, everybody's picking on him. So, you know, we deserve better. We just do. So now I am going to go to story number two, which is the one that aired a few weeks ago. And it really irritates me because I was on fire that day. That report just ran great. So kind of bear with me. Give me a second. Right there. Okay, 
turns out I can't access that. And I can't access my my uh, Office 365 account, so I have to go to another source, which is okay because I always have more than one. Okay. I'm sorry about this, folks. Okay, here we go. This is a piece that was written and published in Common Dreams, written by Jake Johnson. It was published August 11, 2023. This has to do with the fact that while Donald Trump is facing all these indictments for a variety of crimes, the fact is he should be he should have already been completely disqualified from ever running for office because of his role in the insurrection. This all ties together with the 14th Amendment. Have you ever noticed how Donald Trump hates the 14th Amendment? I suspect it isn't just because of birthright citizenship and what he called, you know, uh, anchor babies. That's part of it. But I think the other part is another part of the 14th Amendment, specifically Section 3. Okay? Now, Section 3 um, basically was written into the 14th Amendment. Keep in mind, the 14th Amendment was written after the Civil War, okay? And Section 3 was put in because you had southern states that were sending supporters of another succession rebellion to Congress, all right? So, um, Section 3 bars people like that if they engaged in or gave aid and comfort to an insurrection against the constitutional government, then they would be barred from ever holding office again. So I think this shows or at least implies uh, what Trump's motive may have been, that he knew that you know, if he didn't win re-election, he, intended every, he had every intention to spur on an insurrection and steal the office. Okay? Now, this is the title of this particular um, article is conservative legal scholars. Notice conservative legal scholars argue Trump is disqualified for office under 14th amendment quote, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. End quote. So there were this pair, these two conservative legal scholars that released a paper, and they argued that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that Donald Trump is disqualified to ever hold office again, okay? And this is the same case that progressive experts and watchdogs have also said. So the paper is really an in-depth analysis of Section 3, and it's written by William Boddy of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas. And they contend, quote, that the clause, quote, remains of direct and dramatic relevance today, even though it rose from, quote, a particular historical situation and acute problem arising in the aftermath of the Civil War, end quote. And that's basically how the southern states decide to send supporters of another succession rebellion to Congress. Okay? So, the authors of this paper said, quote, if they engaged in any of these people or gave aid and comfort to an insurrection against the constitutional government, Section 3 would appear to bar them from holding office again, end quote. Now, let's look at Section 3 and what it actually says. 
Okay. I don't, and I think it's pretty clear. So, 14th Amendment, Section 3, says the following, quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and, or comfort to the enemies thereof, end quote. And apparently it takes uh, apparently only a two-thirds vote by both chambers of Congress can lift that disqualification. Not only should this block Trump, any of the Republican office holders, that includes the members of the Republican Attorney General's Association, that includes members of Congress, both houses, any of them, they should all be disqualified permanently. Permanently. This is pretty clear. Now, in this paper, Body and Paulson, again, conservative legal scholars, wrote that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment it's actually known in legal circles as the insurrection clause, is, quote, self-executing, operating as an immediate disqualification from office without the need for additional action by Congress, end quote. Body and Paulson also argue, quote, it can and should be enforced by every official, state or federal, who judges qualifications, end quote. And Buddy and Paulson are rejecting the idea that the First Amendment shields those who have engaged in or incited insurrection from disqualification under Section 3. Okay? And again, when you're inciting a participating in insurrection, no, that is not protected speech under the First Amendment. You know, these MAGA idiots, these MAGA morons, as I call them, they want to basically do what they want to do and never be held accountable for their actions, like a bunch of two-year-olds with dirty diapers. Um, So, and it goes on to say, these two conservative legal scholars, Body and Paulson, they also add that, quote, that the clause, quote, covers a broad range of former offices, including the presidency. And in particular, it disqualifies former President Donald Trump and potentially many others, because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election, end quote. Pretty clear. You can't claim that this is coming from some flaming liberal. These two guys are well known in conservative circles. They're just telling the truth. Hmm. A little more water. Okay. Now, this article also quotes um, the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, John Boniface. Uh, he calls this new paper, quote, a must-read for every Secretary of State and Chief Election Official in the country. As this article makes clear, they must follow the mandate of 14.3 and bar Trump from the ballot. If they do not, we will sue, end quote. I wonder, here in Missouri, our Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, you listening? Or Andrew Bailey, our new Republican Attorney General, are you listening? Or our former Attorney General's? Senator Eric Schmidt and Senator Josh Hawley, are you listening? Okay. 
Now, Free Speech for People is not just the only advocacy, advocacy group um, basically preparing legal action if Trump isn't disqualified. There's several of them, and they include Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, you know, otherwise known as CRU. They argued in a report that, quote, overwhelming evidence establishes that President Trump was the central cause of and a participant in the, resur- in the insurrection, excuse me. Because of that, Trump is disqualified from holding any public office, including the office of the president, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, end quote. Now, gives you a little bit more of a, a local example of what 14.3 can do. So, last September, there was a New Mexico judge who ordered the removal of a county commissioner who took, took part in the January 6th attack. And that's as documented by citizensforethics.org. And that was the first time since 1869, that long ago, that any court disqualified a public official under Section 3. Okay? Now, uh, Paulson gave an interview in the New York Times where... Um, he suggested this new paper they wrote could bolster, quote, a lawsuit presenting a vital constitutional issue that potentially the Supreme Court would want to hear and decide, end quote. Um, and the paper's other co-author, Body, did summarize uh, the conclusion that the, these two men came to in the Times. Body said, quote, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decide to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th, end quote. I think this sets up the case very well. Now, I wanted to give you the bare bones on this. I actually have a lot more information on this today, but we're not going to cover all of it. We are going to be covering more of it at a later date, okay? But I hope you learned something from it. Okay, so now we're going to move on. I'm going to hit our intro again because we're going to go on to another, excuse me, another little um, little story here. And this story also, you know, ties in with the jackass of the week as well. So give me a second here, folks, as we're going to put on our music. Well, not music, our, you know, theme song. to this next story really fast here. <coughs> Excuse me. So, our Jackass of the Week Award. Let's go to it. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. This week it goes to the school, the school board of the Clark County 
the Clark County School Board in Clark County, Nevada, as well as the Clark County Police Department and the superintendent. Bray on, bray on. So what is this story about? Well, according to the messenger and several other, the Hill did the story too. Um, the headline is teachers arrested at Nevada school board meeting. It goes on to say the school board meeting was disrupted by teachers shouting, asking for better pay and calling for the superintendent to be removed from leadership. So the Clark County's uh, school district is really having a big fight here. There's, um, the Clark County School District and Clark County Education Association are in the middle of some very contentious negotiations over teacher contracts. And it, it's so bad, you know, even the state legislature there gave more money, okay? Um, but once again, Clark County, as well as their superintendent, doesn't want to give the teachers a raise. Now, keep in mind, the average home in that area of Nevada runs over 400 grand. Teachers even making 57000 a year can't even pay rent, not after taxes are taken out and their pension and everything else. So these two teachers were handcuffed and escorted out of the school board meeting. The whole meeting was actually, all the teachers were chanting and, and shouting. Um, and again, the school board president, a woman named Evelyn Garcia Morales, tried to restore order. The way the mainstream media, you know, pushed this made it sound like the teachers were at fault, okay? Um, and I would disagree by that. But, you know, once again, um, Clark County School District said that, quote, negotiations with the CCEA, in other words, the Clark County Education Association, the union, will only be resolved at the bargaining table, not by disrupting the business operations of the school district. Okay? As stated at Thursday's board meeting, this happened about a week ago, violating the law by disrupting a public meeting results in consequences. CCSD is charged with educating Clark County's children and those who seek to disrupt the district's business operations will not deter us from fulfilling our mission. One of the most unruly agitators, I'm sorry, once the most unruly agitators were removed from the meeting, the Board of Trustees were able to continue the meeting and complete their business, and that's according to the CCSD statement. Now, we're going to go to another version of this, okay? Um, give me a second here. Okay, so this is I hate this machine I'm working on right now. Okay. So, we've got some reporting from, uh, excuse me, from a little paper called the Nevada Current. Now, there's an editorial here by Kelly Edgar, and the commentary says it's not a lack of funding, it's JARA. So, the superintendent of Clark, the Clark County School District is Dr. Jesus JARA. And the teachers are already engaging in what they call work actions, okay? And that is according to KTNV.com, local um, television station. So, you know, what are they doing? Well, you know, the work actions are basically the teachers. Here, let me go to that. I want to make sure I get this right. All right. So... The with no they have no contract okay and it's illegal 
for public employees to strike, and the teachers haven't threatened a strike. But, you know, what they are doing, um, you know, work actions, one of the things I read is that um, the teachers are refusing to work any additional hours other than their work hours at the while they're at school. Now, to most people, that doesn't sound really horrible. What you have to understand about teaching, and again, I was in education for 30 years. Teachers put in a lot of unpaid hours. That's what you don't understand. And it's not just grading papers. Every time I hear a member of the public say that, I want to just scream. It's more than just grading papers. It's lesson planning. It is going to uh, educational development, again, receiving often no pay. It is staying after school to help a kid. It's all those things. The average teacher in the United States easily puts in an additional 20 hours a week beyond what they're contracted to work. So one of the work actions they're doing is they're refusing to put in any additional time. If it's not done during the business hours of school, it does not get done. And there's nothing wrong with that. So why, why are they so upset? Well, the average educator in Las Vegas, according to the Nevada Current, earns about 57 grand a year. Okay. But the average home there is... 440 grand. Utilities are about 400 a month. Gas is $4.50 a gallon. And this school district in particular has over 1,000 teacher vacancies. Okay? Now, the Nevada legislature was so concerned, they actually increased education funding by $2.6 billion with a B dollars. They passed Senate Bill 231. Um, also, which earmarked an additional $250 million that were specifically meant for raises. Now, Clark County School District received the bulk of the funding, so Clark County School District can afford to pay educators from this state funded, the state funding they received that was specifically earmarked for teacher raises. But that's not what Superintendent Jara did, okay? Um, Instead, he created new associate superintendent positions, and these people would micromanage the school. They spent, according to this, several more million on um, new curriculum without researching whether or not this new curriculum is actually uh, effective. And then what else? It gave every administrator an average raise of $27,000 over two years. Okay. Now, Superintendent Jaro's latest proposal is almost 10% less than what the teachers were asking for. It also includes a sunset clause of 2025. That means that they'll get a little bit of a raise and their pay goes back down in two years. And he also sneaking in, quote, an extra 57 hours to the workload. Uh, he wants to get rid of the current salary table and replace it with a new one, which would require a PhD in order to advance. And that's as documented by the Google Drive. You can actually look at it yourself. And they make several accusations. I don't know how true it is. I did contact the superintendent's office. Um, but one of the accusations by this writer, by Kelly Edgar, is that um, Superintendent Jara, quote, has a history of rewarding only those most loyal to him while spending millions of dollars to bribe those who are not and that's according to the NevadaCurrent.com. 
she cites that in 2021, significant raises were given to top staff members, especially Chief Financial Officer Jason Goody received an increase of 45000 per year. Um, and then they spent millions to buy out principals, quote, who were close to retirement, whose vision did not align with his, with Superintendent Jara. Okay. Now, the accusation of bribery, I'm not saying he did or didn't, but according to the Nevada um, Current, again, another another uh, editorial, you know, by Carrie Kaufman this time in April of 2021, it says CCSD, if you can't beat them, bribe them. Now, apparently, Superintendent Jesus Jara um, arrived in 2018, and according to, I'm just going to read straight from this again, it's her accusation, I'm not making it. Superintendent, quote, Superintendent Jesus Hara has tried since he arrived in 2018 to undermine both the school reorganization law, AB 469, and the administrators who had been defending it. Okay. Um, goes on to say, quote, regular readers know he tried an end run around principles last summer, attempting to con the legislature into centralizing control over carryover funds, which are now controlled by individual schools. He failed humiliatingly. He's tried punishing principals. He put 40 principals of Title I schools on an improvement plan because they're schools of low achievement numbers. Many of the principals who were told they needed to improve have won awards and accolades for the improvement their schools have been since they took over. Many were moved to those schools because of their leadership abilities and vision. And completely coincidentally, many of them have been pretty outspoken against the attempts by JARA and CFO Jason Goody to undermine the reorganization. Okay. So it goes on and on and on, and, you know, I'm familiar with this. First of all, if you're in a Title I school, you get Title I assistance by getting, like, extra money for, like, a reading specialist, a math specialist, and because it's acknowledged the school is struggling. It has students that need the additional help. Um, the principals that try and work with them, again, punishing them like this, this is crazy. But this is what's happening. I'm not saying that it's totally accurate. I don't know, but I will find out. I've seen this before. I've seen it in St. Louis City Public. Okay. But, you know, once again, uh, this article goes on to say there was an open meeting violation in 2021. So much so, the Office of Attorney General Aaron Ford issued this decision quote, on whether or not the CCSD Board of Trustees violated the open meeting law regarding public comments during the pandemic. This article goes on to say, quote, their conclusion, yes, the trustees did violate the law. Specifically, they violated the provision which ensures that people can make comments in real time. The penalty, uh, nothing. The law only requires the public body to fix the violation, <coughs> and the violation was fixed when Linda Cavazos took over as president. Okay, so there's a lot of problems here. All right, I'm not going to go into it in detail. One thing that I will mention about this that I found um, really interesting, this was something from Diane Ravage's blog. Remember Diane Ravage? She was w, George W. Bush's education secretary. She's a college professor, and so, of course, she thought she knew everything about K-12, through and it turns out she knew very little. But since then, Diane Ravage has been doing this penance for working with W and, you know, and she's been touted as this great reformer when the truth is 
she's just trying to correct some of the evil she caused in the first place. But on her blog, it's there was a piece recently that she put, quote, did Jeb Bush choose your district superintendent? And Jeb Bush had this, um, or has this uh, group called Chiefs for Change, and they are directly uh, connected to school privatizers. And guess who was one of these potential superintendents for Chiefs for Change? Dr. Jesus Jara. This is a ter- this is a total conflict of interest. I don't see how Dr. Jara can claim that he wants to help the district when he clearly has been in what it looks like he's been in the hip pocket of school privatizers. All right, and trying to break the teachers union, driving driving away experienced teachers, having teachers arrested because they got loud. All of this really fits into this nice, neat little privatizers attempt to break schools. So there's a lot there going on, and we're going to be talking about it in the future, but for that and so many other reasons, the CC, the Clark County School District, the Clark County Police Department that went along with these arrests, and Dr. Jesus Chara just have won the Progressive News Network's Jackass of the Week Award. Pray on, Dr. Chara, pray on. Okay. So. We have a few more things to get through here. Okay. Give me a second, folks. We're going to go back, play our little intro. Okay, so now we're going to go on to um, my little Margie. Give me a. I'm going to play this again. I didn't quite get to this. Again, I apologize. going to go to our favorite blonde Neanderthal, our segment on My Little Margie. Our favorite blonde Neanderthal. Is she trans? Does she take testosterone? Or is she just that fucking stupid? No one knows for sure. But our little Margie, that little stupid Neanderthal, we just have to see what trouble she gets into next. She can't help it if her IQ doesn't hit the three digits. But, you know, as Daddy Vern says, that's what? There we go. So this week, our favorite blonde Neanderthal. Oh, God, she went another tantrum. Marjorie Taylor Greene is now berating the GOP for not impeaching Joe Biden. Okay? In fact, according to Vanity Fair in a piece by Eric Lutz, 
that was just published yesterday. The headline says, Marjorie Taylor Greene, impeach Biden. I'm going to use her accent. Impeach Biden now or I'll shut down the government. And it goes on to say the far-right lawmaker has tacked on yet another absurd limit ultimatum to the House's GOP wish list, only adding to Kevin McCarthy's headaches. So she's drawing this line on the sand, and she's been quoted as saying the following. I will not, quote, I will not vote to fund the government unless we have passed an impeachment inquiry on Biden, end quote. Now, this is what Green told the town hall audience. Um, she also added she would refuse to support a continuing resolution that would, you know, include funding for what she calls the Biden regime's weaponized government, you know, uh, or also COVID vaccines or Ukraine's defense, etc. She went on to say, quote, I will be happy to work with all my colleagues. I will work with Speaker of the House. I will work with everyone, but I will not fund those things, end quote. Now, they are absurd demands, okay? Um, Keep in mind, if the government shuts down, it's not hurting her. You know, members of the Congress, members of the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, they'll keep getting their paychecks. It'll keep veterans from getting their pension. It'll keep uh, Social Security recipients from getting their checks. You know, the whole thing. Now, keep in mind, she's making these demands, and, and it's it's clear, you know, we know that she's mentally challenged, but <clears throat> here's the deal, and I'm going to tell this to all the MAGA morons over the, out there. In order to impeach a president or a judge, you have to have standing. That means you have to have legal grounds for impeachment. That means there has to be some sort of crime committed, in this instance by the president, or some other malfeasance in order to justify impeachment. You just can't impeach willy-nilly. You have to have evidence of legal wrongdoing and not just arguments in tantrums. Now, you know, it's easy to call our little Margie, excuse my language, a fucking moron. It is. And, you know, there are MAGA people that would say, oh, you're slandering her. It's like, well, here's the thing. It's only slander if it's not true. And, you know, as Marjorie Taylor Greene has clearly given evidence publicly that, you know, yes, our little Margie, she is a fucking moron. Period. There is nothing to be said here. She is a moron who is basically working with the Trump lynch mob, and that's what it is. You know, the more mainstream Republicans, they're only going along with it because they're terrified of Trump's lynch mob, and that's what it is. It's a lynch mob. Make no mistake about it. But to those of you that argue that, well, you know, to call Marjorie Taylor Greene a fucking moron is slander, no, no, it's not. You know, little Margie is clearly given plenty of evidence that, yes, indeed, it is true. Our little Margie is a fucking moron. So, kudos to our little Margie. Next week, we will have another tale of the blondest Neanderthal moron in the entire U.S. House of, Rep- in the US House of Representatives. 
God. What? Again, so our little Neanderthal. Got to wonder about her. Bye-bye. Okay. So that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> Excuse me. So we've covered that. All righty. All righty. So excuse me a minute here. A little intro music while we go to our next installment. Okay, so I, I want to make one serious note here. You know, tomorrow's Labor Day, and let's talk about Labor Day, okay, and the sheer mockery that we've made of it. You know, Labor Day was established to not only honor the union and unions and union activists, but to establish a day that, yes, business was supposed, business as usual was supposed to stop, Okay. And what it's morphed into is a, a piece of frivolity that people go, they have picnics, barbecues, and, of course, they go shopping. The ultimate Labor Day sales. That Talk about a slap in the face, you know, where workers that work for these big box stores are either forced or coerced into working on the holiday that's supposed to celebrate workers, the workers that stood up to the the severe abuse doled out by the rich and powerful that's what it is and i would urge everybody do not shop on labor day in fact the stores should all be closed on labor day and every every worker should be given a, a day's pay period you know you have plenty of other time to shop it's ridiculous especially this year where you see so many previous child labor laws are under attack now by the gop this is outrageous. You know, I had a grandfather who was a child laborer. He came to this country not speaking any English, and my grandpa Feigenbaum was locked in the sweatshop. If there had been a fire, they would have all perished. Those kids were beaten half to death if they didn't make quota. But it was okay because they were only immigrants, right? Right. That's what this was about. So on this Labor Day, Let's actually remember what it's supposed to be about. And those of us who have friends and family go, oh, it's shopping. Give them an earshot full. Shame them. Shame them. I don't want to hear, especially the women, where just say, I didn't do anything wrong. You're enabling the abuse. Shame them. Because we are in a battle, not only for the survival of our our fragile democracy such as it is we're in a battle against the abuses yes of the very rich and it is abuse make no mistake about it there is no legitimate reason why we can't have medical care for everyone medical care is a human right and you know if you're a doctor and you don't want to work for a certain you know, pay, you don't want to accept Medicare patients or Medicaid, whatever, then you don't need to be a doctor anymore. 
Okay, it's that simple. This is we saw during the pandemic. And the pan, keep in mind, the pandemic's still going on. But during the worst of the pandemic, you know, we saw how certain medical doctors created basically boutique practices where, where they would go to the rich and deny to anybody else. We need to call out these people. Healthcare is a human right. There's no reason why our tax dollars can't pay for that. You know, instead our tax dollars are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry when they don't need the subsidies anymore. There's no reason why we can't pay for college or post-secondary education, whether it's college, trade school, whatever, as long as it's a state-owned school. If you choose to go to a private school, then, you know, you should get a voucher for the same amount it would cost you to go to a public school, and then after that, it's on you. There's no legitimate reason why we can't have that. There's no legitimate reason why we can't have a living wage in this country. And newsflash, $15 an hour is not sufficient. The fact, did you know that if the former minimum wage back in the 1960s, which, by the way, was not meant to be a teenage or a kid wage, the minimum wage, when it was established, was intended originally to allow a single wage earner to support a family of four with the basics, meaning a place to live, food on the table, yes, some health care. All right? Let's stop this historic revision because what they're saying is not true. The minimum wage from the late 1960s, if it were only adjusted for inflation and nothing else, would not be $15 an hour. It'd be between $24 and $25 an hour. We have been cheated. We have been lied to. And, you know, it it confounds me, you know, how these MAGA morons – Apparently, their their racism, their hatred of uppity women, their homophobia, their transphobia, all their all their hatreds are more important to them than getting a fair deal economically. Amazing. So on this Labor Day, if you have friends and family that are excited about going shopping, you need to read them the Riot Act because that is irresponsible and that is really vile. Okay, that, that's my soapbox for today. Now, one last thing. I, I, we got a little Randy Rainbow coming. Hope you enjoy it. It's don't arraign on his parade. The Donald. Give me a minute here. I'm going to turn the volume up. Okay, here we go.
Oh, that that was so good. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> okay, that's our show for today. I hope you learned something. I will let you know that we're <coughs> excuse me. We will be talking more about sec, uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, and in future programming. We will also be talking more about that, um, you, know, you know, what's happening in Clark County teachers because it's probably going to be repeated elsewhere. You know, I, I just want to end with this. Uh, I was on Facebook earlier today and I got into it with an anti-masker and anti-vaxxer. And this idiot had the gall to compare where, again, wearing a mask to being forced into a concentration camp, and I lost it. I'm going to tell you that right now. I lost it. I'm a Jew who lost family in the Holocaust, and I'm not going to let anybody cheapen what happened because these people are so effing privileged. You know, So I probably wind up in Facebook jail again. I have a running joke with an old classmate that which one of us is queen of Facebook jail, and I'm, I'm very proud of of my status um you know once again we have to hold people accountable all right and you know among a lot of especially affluent white liberals they don't get it you know they're affluent they look white enough even if they're a minority and they just think it's somehow rude to you know fight back well it's not rude it's something we have to do make no mistake about it this MAGA nonsense is fascism. And we're going to be talking about that in the future because Donald Trump, yes, it is not hyperbole to say he is a fascist. He is. His, and his followers, they are cultists. And we're going to be talking about that more, not just about what Trump's doing, but the fact that corporate Democrats have done nothing to stop this. And I do mean nothing. So, anyway, I hope you learned something today. I hope you enjoyed a little bit of the humor in the show. We will be back next week. And with that, I say, and and hopefully this show won't be censored by Blog Talk like the earlier show about disqualifying Trump did once again. Um, I I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, you can find my written work. I've, I, In the past, I've published extensively. All you have to do is Google my name, Janine Moloff. I've published extensively in Huffington Post, UK Progressive. I am a staff writer on Nation of Change. I publish on Eurasia Review, uh, Op-Ed News, and, and many others. Right now, I, I'm working on a piece uh, that's more local. There is a death row prisoner named Marcellus Williams. Um, he had an execution. He had a, a stay of execution that our government, that our governor, illegally rescinded. I'm working on a piece right now, so there's a lot going on. Uh, I hope that if you like the show, not only like it, but please share it with others. We don't have a paywall, and the only way we can get the message out there is if you share it with your friends. Because frankly, um, we have been, uh, I guess, because of the algorithm and also some other things. We have been virtually, uh, you know, quarantined, if you will, by Facebook and Twitter and many others. So please send our our shows to everybody you know. Um, 
I hope you remember what the real reason for Labor Day is tomorrow and to respect and honor those who sacrifice not only their jobs, sacrifice their lives. People died establishing unions, fighting for just basic human um, human rights on the workplace. With that, I say uh, good night and bless us by whatever you believe in because we're going to need it. <laughs>